Welcome to another episode here at the Midnight Founders Podcast. We're so excited to be with you today. This is AJ Rounds from Rev Road and Jake McCard from CB Vault. Here at the Midnight Founders Podcast, we focus on telling behind the scenes stories for what makes a successful entrepreneur. We're excited for another week. Here we go. Today we are here with Tim Lipton, founding member of Momentum Finance. Uh, super excited to have you here. I mean, we've He's come all the way down from Eden near Ogden, so it's good to have you in studio, and we're excited to dive into your story today, Tim. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah. it, H. I bet you still have snow up there. We do above 7,000 feet. Yeah, it's the wild The yard this is year. green, and I've mowed it twice. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I bet that was a good day. Yeah, heck snow yeah. Snow on the mountains, nice lake on the bottom, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> very true. That's great. Well, as we always do, Tim, on the podcast, we want you to start out with giving us a 30-second pitch on what you're doing and what you're accomplishing. Sure. Thank you. Uh, so I'm the founder of Momentum Finance. We're a fractional CFO firm. Uh, it's a boutique firm. I've got a controller, CPA, accountant, bookkeeper, financial analyst, and we help uh, um, paper napkin to Series B founders You know, manage their back office so they can focus on the innovations of you know product marketing, uh, service, and not worry about the back office. We take care of projections and reporting, and we charge hourly. So it's a uh, you get a full stack team, uh, only as much as you need. Cool. So you drop. So you're looking at companies that are startup or series. Paper napkin to series B. Series so, B. Okay. You know we've been partners with founders as early as the incorporation. Got it. And then we've been pulled in for uh, rapid. Uh, cleaning up of the books pre, you know, series B term sheet. Cool. Um, so anything in between, we're able to help out. And you drop in and you're the CFO and all finance uh, functions go through you and the team at Momentum Finance, right? Yes. We got a controller and then we have uh, a CPA and a bookkeeper and we just put the work in the right person's uh, bucket and get it done as quickly as possible. Very cool. Is there a certain industry or a certain segment that you work with best? Or? I you know, uh, my background is equity research, investment banking. So I covered uh, software technology companies on Wall Street. Also did some special situations work. So at the pre-series B level, it's not overly complicated. And so you can kind of throw any industry at me and we'll figure it out. And I really prefer to pick founders that I trust, respect, and like. And that's kind of the the determining factor of whether it's going to be a good partnership. <laughs> the finances so, get more and more complicated the longer they wait to hire somebody. That's right. <laughs> you know, my rule of that's thumb right. is it's two or three X the cost to fix something than it is to do it right the first time. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, I guess the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the tip of the day is bring donuts or something when you meet with Tim. So he likes you up front. So he'll want to work <laughs> with you. Um, you were starting to talk about kind of your journey at Vanderbilt and then oh, yeah. from there. Yeah. So, um, I went to Vanderbilt and I wanted to learn about, uh, the ways of the world of, uh, the investment world. And so I started as uh, a data analyst at a Morgan, uh, Keegan, uh, as a, you know, just to right out of, out of school. And then I really fell in love with intangibles. So I became a registered rep and I got my commodities license and I started, I was a, a branch manager for a while. And then I had an opportunity to become a equity research analyst. And so I moved to Memphis working at Morgan Keegan. And then I, after three years of working 110 hours a week, I, uh, I switched to investment banking and then Regions Financial bought the firm and I left. 
and then found my way out to the Bay Area to become a lone wolf CFO and bounced around and did that uh, for about a decade and then woke up one morning with the epiphany that I needed to start a firm, created Momentum Finance, got an accounting team in place, and, uh, and have been just doing kind of this, uh, I guess, a referral practice of, you know, helping founders by managing their back office and supporting them in due diligence. Very cool. So uh, San Fran, and that's where you were most recently before coming to Utah. Yeah. Um, and then you came from Memphis. And then where did you say you were from originally? I grew up in Southwest Virginia. Southwest Virginia. So you've pretty much spanned the entire country. <laughs> I have. Yeah. Hopefully you're not going to make your way back to Virginia, right? Or West Virginia. I really feel like Utah's home. Oh, Utah's uh, home. This reminds me a lot of Virginia. Um, I, you know, it's a, a small town where I grew up, and I just fell in love with Eden has a similar vibe and uh, cool it's a good fit what brought you to utah skiing oh really yeah so i've been skiing since i was three sailing since i was seven and uh i think five years ago i made multiple trips out and fell in love with the utah champagne and uh, had had so many opportunities to visit that season i was like well maybe i should have a little footprint out here hard to find champagne though here too much right (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just our our light dry snow, which is just uh, right. Yeah, and what a season we had this year. Yeah, oh, I'm sure incredible. we picked a year to be here for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we had uh, you know I would say three or four of the best five days we've ever had were probably out uh, you know on uh, John Paul and Strawberry over at Basin. Wow, that's incredible. So, what got you into like why why did you choose finance? Well, I did it initially because I knew that uh, high finance or finance in general is, you know, it's, it's got a mixed reputation, right? It is, it's, a, it's an intellectual space. It deals with intangibles, but, you know, like stockbrokers may not have the best reputation. And I wanted to go in and learn that business. So once I was successful, I wouldn't be taken advantage of. And I was drawn to it because I really do enjoy the, enjoy, enjoy the intangible nature of the business. And to have a conversation with founders and to learn about their vision, their, the, the business model, so to speak, and then translating that into a spreadsheet and then using the analytical abilities to understand the implications of what the KPIs are trying to tell you, uh, that became a bit of a financial storytelling um, piece for me. And, and that was really driven home with my equity research opportunity. And after a few years doing that, it just it just gelled, and then I decided to take the skill set and bring it down to the uh, the startup stage. Yeah, why why startups? Well, it's the it's the greenfield whiteboard. Uh, you know, you're creating something from nothing, the visionary stage, and that really attracted me from the creative side. Because um, once you know, once you understand how to to build these spreadsheets. You also identify that there's there's a lot of challenges that uh, founders have with translating their vision into the hard numbers, which at some point are involved in the conversation. And I think that drove me to be filling in the gap of what can a early stage CFO bring to the table with Wall Street experience. And it's really that financial storytelling, the, the ability to help them come up with rational, bottom-up driven financial modeling because we all know that financials are made up. 
I mean, even the vision, the company is made up when the founder has their epiphany and, and understands what journey they're going to embark on. It's, it's all, you know, they started filling in the whiteboard, but it essentially is blank until it starts, you know, becoming real. And so to help that uh, process and to give it some credibility and to provide some trim tab guidance on, you know, rational expectation setting. Hmm. Have you noticed, you know, as you're working with, you know, founders and entrepreneurs, have you noticed any patterns that are interesting to you as far as their their financial knowledge or their acumen and how much they know or don't know or the things that they ask you over and over again? Uh, what are some of the patterns you're noticing as you're working with these folks? Well, I think my primary guidance is you want to have kind of 10K-esque output. And so uh, the 10Ks and the 10Qs are the public filings that uh, public companies present uh, to the SEC, and that's, quote-unquote, primary research due diligence source materials, to bring that format and to bring the underlying assumptions of structure to the early stage helps founders kind of coalesce their vision and then regurgitate it in a way that's easily digestible by the investors. And it also kind of puts some guide rails in. You know, we want, you know, if when I'm helping a founder, you want that spreadsheet to look as professional as possible and to look as standard as possible relative to every other company that an investor has looked at that hopefully has a successful, um, you know, triggering their memory. Like this looks like the other successful investments that I've made. And so some of that standard formatting comes into play and helping them understand like a founder, you know, at the paper napkin stage has three primary responsibilities where they demonstrate to the investors that they understand how to balance a checkbook. They understand the cost of delivering the service and they have some sense of what the market will bear as far as the price. And once you understand that, then you have to translate that into standard, simple, bottom-up driven financials so that you can tell that story easily and simply and not get uh, convoluted. And, you know, you don't want to present a color-coded spreadsheet that is a, a unique creation. You want to create something that's standardized. Yeah, I think that's really brilliant. I think it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, I haven't been in banking long I, I grew up, my dad was an entrepreneur. He's owned his own business since 1989. And I watched him struggle with the financial side of the business. Um, you know, he's he's built cabinets and he's really great at building cabinets. He's not great at knowing what his uh, cost to produce those cabinets are. And I thought he was pretty unique in that. Like, I, I didn't think that was like a common issue that entrepreneurs faced. But the longer I've been in banking, the more I've realized that that it really is common. You have entrepreneurs that are very, very good at what they do, but not all of them are really good at the numbers side or the finance side. And so, well, yeah, I'm sure you bring a ton of value on that side. Well, it's hard also from the standpoint of, you know, I joke about accounting. Nobody cares about accounting until it's wrong. Yeah. You know, and there's a standard, there's a right way in every other way. And it's not particularly exciting unless you just happen to have the personality that's into that kind of thing. And that's why I've built my team to really handle the nuts and bolts of the tactical accounting to make sure it's accurate, it's gap compliant, and to solve that problem. Because, you know, good ideas don't come with a, a finance, uh, a CFO, a background on how to do the thing. Somebody's passionate about something. They figured out how to do it and hopefully make more money than it costs them to do the thing. But if they have money in the checking account, they're, they're good. They're not really that worried about it. Yeah. But when you start asking for other people's money and you start having to work with the bank, 
then the level of sophistication required, uh, the bar just generally gets higher and higher, and you have to have a more sophistication in your reporting. And if you don't know how to do it, it's also not that rewarding to have that skill set learned, right? You just want to be able to offload that and, you know, make sure it's accurate and correct. But I have founders, clients that I bet they spend five or 10 minutes a month looking at the workbook. They're like, <laughs> it looks good. We're good. They're back at the business. Yeah. Um, that shows a level of trust, though. For sure. Most definitely. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's so valuable. Being able to, like, let go of something like that and and trust that, you know, all of the details are handled and, and just let you focus on your business, the, the value of that is just huge. I, I know, Tim, that you're also working a lot with Park City Angels, uh, which is very cool. What things have you seen within that organization as it relates to entrepreneurs that would be helpful for this audience? Maybe tips or advice or... Yeah, I mean, my experience with Park City Angels has been one of really a ton of fun. My motivations were you know, to meet some new folks, to get some chairlift meetings on the books, um, to be able to mentor some founders that come through, and obviously to make some some money with, with good opportunities. One of the things that we see is not always does a founder really understand what the boxes are checking. So take, for example, the pitch deck. You know, we have... Uh, you know, we have some really good resources to recommend how to have a very effective pitch story. But that's the real important part is make sure that it's a story, right? I mean, so on the financial side, you want to make sure your historicals and your projections and the pitch deck all have the same nomenclature when you're talking about the revenues and the categories, et cetera. You also want to make sure there's a compelling story. Like when a founder comes and talks to us, you want to make sure that they've identified a problem that we think is worth solving. They have a, a, a seemingly and intuitively good idea on a solution. And the story is, tell me that why you're the compelling person to solve that problem. And that's the piece that some folks miss. And it's really the most important part with understanding how, how are you telling me a compelling story? Like there are a ton of founders out there trying to raise money. But it was a, is it a story that lands with me that I'm like, this is the person I really want to support? And, you know, the, the joke is, you know, an investment's a bit of a marriage. I mean, this thing is, this relationship hopefully will go on for a decade. And you want to be having that really nice dynamic of trying to help each other, uh, open lines of communication. You know, I always joke that uh, one of the things the, the Trojan horse relationship with an angel investor is their network and their time are as valuable, if not more so, than their money. And so it's part of bringing those, the right angels to the table so that they can, you know, open their network to you. They can spend some time giving you sage advice. You can avoid some of the pitfalls that they've probably learned the hard way. It's interesting you say that. Um, you know, at Rev Road, we see that a lot, where, you know, when we send them over to Rev Road Capital to help get them uh, or at least apply for for some money, you know, for some funding. That's helpful. But prior to that, like all the knowledge and the skills and the networks and the referrals that, that they get from Rev Road is super valuable to them. Uh, and it helps them get to that point where they can get money in a much more efficient way and not give away so much of their company. I mean, so. it's it's a learning process. And successful companies raise money every six to nine months. You know, I mean, you may not be doing a price round, 
but every 18 months, because, you know, every price round should have 18 months of runway. Maybe the new 18 months is 24. But yeah. you're probably raising safes in between the price rounds. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the founder is always raising money. It just never stops. And so having that be a comfort level uh, and really working with building those relationships, because, you know, in a perfect world, you're socializing raises before you do them. Like, you know, those venture capitalists that you're going to go ask for uh, that next price round for multi-million dollars, you want to become friends with that person before you ask them for something. So that's interesting, Tim. I love that you're saying this. So you're you're advocating for founders, hey, good, get good at fundraising because you'll be doing a lot of it. It's never going to stop. Hmm. Well, and also I think, you know, I sat on a, a panel uh, a few months ago and there were three venture capital um, investors there. And they all said the same thing. They said, uh, intro emails from a founder, like this, the likelihood of success at raising money, if the first time I hear about your company is from an intro email, is like next to zero. Right. If you have a warm intro from somebody else, or you've met me a few times and I have a relationship with you, the likelihood of me actually scheduling meeting you with you is really high. And the likelihood of you actually raising money goes way up. And it comes back to, you know, the, pe- the thing that people say is the most important about real estate's location. Well, the most important thing about, you know, startup land is the founder. Yeah. And so the founders, that, that's a human one-to-one relationship. You want to trust that person. You want to trust their judgment. Uh, you want to start building a level of empathy um, and, and joy about helping this person succeed, which is, you know, again, this is all part of that, the human condition and that story where, it's all about the relationships and, you know, to the point of, you know, if I can have the most beautiful pitch deck in the world with the most attractive financial projections. That doesn't get the check. You know, it's, you've, that has to, you know, the, the third leg of that story is the founder, but it's more than a third of the equation. Right? So if they're struggling to find that story and find their voice, what do you, what advice do you give them or how do you help them through that? The best advice is the community. I mean, one of the great things about Utah, the ecosystem, is there's a ton of community. Silicon Slopes, Rev Road, founders and funders. There's a lot of networking opportunities for founders to spend time with each other. Uh, There's a lot of recognition of which founders are succeeding, so you can watch them and spend some time with them, buy them a cup of coffee, ask them what's working for them. Uh, we have a really robust early stage investment community. I mean, we've got a ton of seed funds, uh, which is not normal. I would say, you know, we, we, Utah is very special in the, the interconnectedness of the community and also uh, early stage money. It's nice to hear from somebody that's not a Utah native. Like I was going to ask you this, but you just, <laughs> yeah. you already answered the question. What makes Utah unique? I was feeling the same. I'm like, yes, yeah. validation yeah. right here. Other than the champagne. I like yeah. hearing <laughs> that there's, there's some other cool things about Utah and you, you've spent time in Silicon Valley and you spent time other, other places in the country. So I think Utah's unique, but I, you know, I was born in Mapleton and I live in Mapleton still. So I, you know, I, I love Utah, so I'm a little biased. Well, it's an incredibly special place. I mean, the commu- the the personality uh, the, of the of the folks here. Uh, it's it's very open. It's sharing. It's community driven, and there's just enough influx of folks that aren't from here. I mean, you know, Park City Angels is a good example. I mean, most of those people are not locals, uh, but they now are local, right? So you have their expertise. You have their their networks uh, that they're bringing to the table. 
to help young founders that they meet. And, you know, Park City Angels is interesting because we have a bias towards working with Hutons, but we're not wedded to it, right? I mean, one of the exciting stories, um, we talked to Troy, founder at EarthGrid, which is a really cool idea that came across our, our desk a couple months ago. Well, I mean, he's a California guy. So, I mean, we still love good ideas wherever they may come from. Um, and we have a, an intrinsic bias towards, you know, helping the local founders. And most of uh, the funded deals this year have been locals. Hmm. Well, and it sounds like, Tim, just from our conversations before the podcast went live, that, you know, you, you came here almost accidentally, uh, you did. know, happened to purchase a home or something, a ski yep. and ski out home, and the COVID hit. And you're like, why not stay, right? Yeah, it was, I had an amazing experience. Uh, I was skiing at Snow Basin and Powder Mountain and came Love back. those, by the way. Came back multiple times that year, had a ton of fun. It was this really surreal experience where it seemed like we got two, three inches of snow every night. <laughs> so it was just this beautiful, new, picturesque slope every day. Um, I got a what, what I thought was a ski house, and that became a, a bit of a permanent residence. Uh, when I transitioned from San Francisco, I still have a footprint there. And it's, a, it's great to bounce between the two places, but it also it filled a hole from living in the urban environment that I wasn't completely aware existed. But when I moved to Eden and I get a lot of my food from there, you know, it was kind of that farm to table mentality that, you know, we used to go up and and seek out in some of the the fine dining restaurants or go up to Napa Valley. And then to have that recreated uh, in a much smaller scale uh, for myself and my personal life was, was just awesome. Best of both worlds, almost. Truly. And, uh, you know, I really feel like I'm home here. Very cool. Heck yeah. So, Tim, this is all really um, great information, and we're super excited to hear about what you're doing. What what do you see as next on the horizon for Momentum and Park City Angels, and what are you excited about? I'm really excited about growing my engagement with the community. I've started doing some more mentoring. Uh, We've started uh, growing our our clients for Momentum Finance in Utah, which is very exciting. It's It's been a, I've been out of my COVID cave for, you know, a year and a half or so and been social and working with a lot of folks and really enjoying the community, the quality of the founders, the quality of the companies. And that's just being reinforced with whether I'm engaging with uh, founders through Park City Angels and leading due diligence and getting us to invest in these companies and triggering the Park City Angel um, Fund One, which is the sidecar we put together last year, and collaborations with Salt Lake City Angels, so that we're, the two groups co-invest, and then just kind of ad hoc mentoring opportunities with uh, organizations like you know Rev Road and Beating Throats with uh, Jeff Erickson and and Bree at Founders and Funders, and you know it's just a ton of fun because my passion is working with founders, whether it's again you know as friends or investments or clients. I'm really interested to know, I, I mean, you've, you've obviously been involved at multiple stages um, in the startup world, um, like you say, from back of napkin to Series B. Um, what are some common pitfalls or what's some advice that you have for entrepreneurs as they're just getting started? A lot of the listeners of the podcast are kind of early stage entrepreneurs. So what advice sure. do you have for them? Primary advice is when you're putting those financials together, 
uh, I recommend a founder try to read a 10K or a 10Q from a company, a publicly traded company that's in your industry and start get wrapping your heads around what you are seeing. How is that information presented? The aesthetics of it, the format of it, because you want to replicate the thing about the public filings. Any company on the planet can be crammed into that format. So there's no reason you can't bring that format to the early stage. You have a lot less information to share, but you still want to present it that way. So there's that level of professionalism. You want to trigger that recognition, the aesthetic of 10K-esque financials for investors. You also want to focus on, you know, bottling that, uh, bottling the lightning of what is the passion and why are you the right founder to do the thing? Because there's a ton of people that have a great idea. And I always joke, I said, well, every great idea is worth a million bucks. If it's worth more than a million bucks, that's all execution, right? Mm-hmm. So you I have like to demonstrate that you are the person to take this company to the next level. And also, one-man bands typically fail. So you want to demonstrate that you're a leader. Show me you've got the technical co-founder or, or the founders. Show me that you've got a beginning team and that these people run, want to follow you uh, to that promised land of, of a successful venture. And... You know, help us understand the big venture. I mean, not everything is going to be a, a unicorn or that billion-dollar company, and not everything is a boil-the-ocean kind of idea. I think it's great if there's a startup that the promised land is a $50 million company. That's awesome. It's great for your community. It's great for you. You know, if that's not an exit, it's probably cash flowing nicely. There's nothing wrong with, quote-unquote, some of these smaller successes. And I think also knowing yourself and your personality and that's part of the team building, recognize your weaknesses and complement those uh, with bringing additional partners on. Are there any, uh, when you're looking at founders as an angel, um, are there any things that like stick out to you that are immediate um, deal killers? The One of the biggest problems is not having that team. So okay. you have a lot of folks that come with an early um, idea and, I, and one way of, another way of saying it is the inventor versus the entrepreneur. So maybe you have someone with a great idea, but doesn't really necessarily strike you as an operator that's going to be able to build that team and raise the money and socialize with the investors, you know, really be a leader that's going to, call, that's going to draw people to them like a, a moth to a flame. And these are, that's part of the secret sauce of being a successful founder. Um, and also some of the early stage folks, if they're a little bit later in life, maybe it's a salary level. You know, we always joke that, you know, it's the ramen noodle days when you're first that paper napkin to some raise north of maybe $10 million. You know, you're not paying yourself a quarter million dollars a year. And you're the founder and you should have all that equity. You're paying yourself the bare minimum so that you're focused. You're not worried about paying your bills, but you're not saving money. You're obviously, the upside is in the equity you own. Um, and so you don't want to see three founders getting paid 15000 a month. Like, that's not, not what angels want to write a check for. Um, so that, I think those are two things. It's, you know, show me that you have a team and show me that your self-imposed lean on uh, the way payroll happens for the founders and that you really are doing your best uh, to get a ton done with not a lot of, of resources. 
Grit. I love that. We use the word grit a lot. They can show grit and and uh, live by it, right? Yep. Um, I really like the concept that you brought up about, um, you know, go through some of those public documentation elements of publicly traded companies and start almost with the end in mind. So that's what you're working right. towards. Right. And you're building that out early so it's familiar to you um, later on. Um, oftentimes in finance specifically, there's two camps, right? Some that say, hey, you're, you're the founder. Go do what you do best and hire all that stuff out. But yet the other camp says, no, there is a level of financial acumen you need to have to be successful as a founder. Where would you, where I've would had, you stand? I've had founders come to me and they say, I'm not a numbers person. And I, my response is, well, then you can't be CEO. Mm. Now, so if you're going to say, I'm not a numbers person, I don't want to be a numbers person, then you're not going to, then you're going to need to find someone that has that skill set and that hopefully complements some other weaknesses that you may have to be your co-founder. And maybe they're the CEO and you're the product person or you're the tech person or you're the, you know, there's some other, there's a partnership opportunity there. Um, and I also tell people that, you know, 10Ks are not complicated. It's super simple because it has to apply to every company on the planet, after, you know, at a certain stage. And so the devil's in the details. It's the footnotes where all the complications happen. Uh, but just understanding the three or four departments, you know, I mean, you've got your revenue and then your variable costs. And then you've got basically three primary departments under that. And then kind of the, the EBITDA is that final number. Those concepts are not hard. And you just need to understand the almost the strategy behind the way that's laid out if you understand that that's good enough like you can hire a fractional cfo or you can bring on uh, a bookkeeper or someone at the early stages just to make sure your ducks in a row the numbers are categorized in the right places like you don't have to understand accounting that's not what uh investors are looking for but you do need to understand the implications of the numbers and it's really helpful for our listeners to hear yeah, a lot of them feel like, oh, my goodness, if I don't have a certain level or if I'm not an accountant in some way, shape or form, I shouldn't do this. But really, that's not the case. No. And there are a ton of resources out there. I mean, we're kind of a boutique white glove place that, you know, we handle everything, make sure it's all perfect. You know, we probably charge a little bit more than some of the options where you could pay somebody just a, a, a very simple flat fee. And just make sure the entries are made in QuickBooks. It's not perfect, but everything's there. Uh, there's a time and a place, right? I mean, some folks don't want to spend, make up a number, a few thousand dollars a month at the early stages because they're like, why? What's the point? I might agree with you, and then you'll pay more later to clean it up and make it perfect when you're going to ask for that multi-million dollar check. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I Again, back to my dad, I saw his struggles uh, early on. Um and <clears throat> I always knew I wanted to be involved in entrepreneurship. I, you know, I, I knew I wanted to kind of be in this space. And, and I, I knew that understanding the finance side was going to be a key to being successful. And so I ended up going to school to get an accounting degree. And yeah, I, I was never intending to be an accountant, but, uh, but I wanted to be able to understand financial statements and uh, so I agree with you completely. I think having at least a basic understanding of how the financial statements works um, will also impact the decisions that you make as a founder. So, And it's really important to understand contextually what we're trying to get across with finance. Yeah. 
because there's some pattern recognition that the investors are looking for, you know, which is, you know, kind of percentage based, like, you know, what are, what is the, the gross margin, the variable cost, less revenue, kind of where's that settling in? There's also, you know, the early stage, you're probably spending 70, 80% on payroll, right? There's not a whole lot else you should be spending on. These people are supposed to be doing work, working hard, 70, 80 hours a week maybe, building enterprise value, and especially in a, on a tech team. These folks are just sitting there cranking out code and, and building something from nothing. The other piece that's really important for founders to appreciate early on is always uh, also tease, you know, cash is king, but culture is queen. So very on, early on in this process, you want to start laying the foundation of the culture of the company as well. And some of that is what's important, you know, whether it's the work-life balance and how, you know, how, where does the customer fit into this relationship? What does that feedback loop look like? Um, how do your advisors and your investors uh, feed into that? I mean, to the best of my ability, I kind of have a, a family attitude towards momentum finance that this team is... These are the people that I spend the most time in my life working with. And so we want to have a family environment where it's super respectful and trusting and safe for everybody. And then you're focused on doing a, a great job. So high quality output with a, a lot of, uh, you know, self-motivation and oversight. Love that. I love it. How do, uh, how do people reach out? So if we have early stage companies that are looking for help, uh, how do they sure. find you? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Timothy Lipton, and Momentum Finance. Uh, info at Momentum Finance is an email that you can reach us at. And we're always open to uh, talking to new founders and happy to talk to folks and give them some, some mentoring advice. And if there's an opportunity to work together, we'll figure that out as well. How do they engage with Park City Angels? Uh, ParkCityAngels.com. So you start the application, and then that will take you to the opportunity to create a gust profile. And so we have a, a pretty robust uh, process that we go through. We've um, got a, you know, an embarrassment of riches right now. We've got, you know, 50 or so applications every month. We try to pick the top 10 or so that we talk to in person. Uh, we'll probably invite maybe the top six to have a screening meeting. And then maybe the top three will present at the, the monthly general meeting. Very cool. Awesome. Yeah. Anything else, Tim, that you wanted to talk about or address on the podcast that we didn't get to? This is kind of your time. To, the floor um, is open. Uh, I'm just pleased to be here. I appreciate uh, being invited. Big fan of RevRoad. I've met some of the, the team. Uh, we've, we've had some chairlift meetings, which is a great way to get to know each other. That's right. And, um, you know, just thrilled that you guys are a part of the community. And, uh and I think, Jake, the, the banking side, it's nice to know that we've got some local banks that care about startups. There's, uh, there's some opportunities in the marketplace now. <laughs> For sure. And, um, you know, it's just a, this is a great community to be a part of. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. The Midnight Founders Podcast is a podcast about entrepreneurship that is hosted by CB Vault and Rev Road. CB Vault is the entrepreneur arm of Central Bank. And RevRoad is a venture services firm where companies come to grow. Thanks for listening to us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is AJ and Jake signing out.